The Natural Hat Trick, hosted by Luke Lipinski and Craig Morgan. Welcome into episode 272 of the Natural Hat Trick podcast alongside Craig Morgan. Good morning, Luke Lipinski. How's it going, Craig? I am Luke Lipinski, and uh, we've each got, we're each trying out new backgrounds on the Zoom call. It's pretty fantastic. Craig, can you explain to us where you are? Actually, no, you explain where I am, and I'll explain where you are. Well, you're somewhere tropical, and there is apparently uh, a lovely woman standing next to you in a flowing pink dress that keeps appearing periodically. Only the dress. Yes. So that's clearly realistic, and it's where I am. Um, I will say at least mine, even though it looks like I'm broadcasting from, like, uh, the right where, like, the tide is hitting the beach, which probably isn't safe. Yours, you are broadcasting on an angle from, I would say, about 200 feet above the Golden Gate Bridge, apparently. Yes, I'm in a tower in the Presidio. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're doing this every week now until we get back to a normal studio. I'm going to find somewhere, but I'm going to make sure I have this pink dress that does keep appearing. Uh, it, every it time. Is, do, you, do you find it odd how the sun is actually setting in San Francisco here at 10 a.m.? Yes, I do. I was going to ask you about that, but I didn't want to. Probably climate change. I don't know. <laughs> well, I was told that doesn't exist. And uh, I do wonder why this pink shirt keeps randomly appearing in mine, but, you know, whatever. Also, I'm out in the middle of a tropical island, and I'm completely shaded. So that's just that's good planning on my part. Which island uh, is this, Luke? I would say this is uh, Trinidad or Tobago. I'm okay. not sure which one. Okay. I'll get back to you by the end of the show. Um, all right, let's start. Let's go. Let's go around the league before we get into the Coyotes, and we got a good amount of questions that we'll get into too. And I tried to look. I read through the, about the first twenty, so I know we have at least twenty we're going to get to. And, um, you want to, you don't want to start with the awards yet, right? You want to go through some of these other ones? You're, you're the show host, Luke. Yeah. I'm just vamping because my, the bus. my email shut down. That's why I was uh, talking through that. Um, okay. There's the caddy guy behind you in the seat behind you, you know, <laughs> the one who likes to sit behind the bus driver and talk to the bus driver and distract them while they are trying to drive. Yeah. Who are those people? Those are great. Uh-huh. And they, you tell the bus drivers like, you know what? I'm just, I'd rather just not at this point. I'd rather listen to a podcast probably than Addy Hattie. Um, let's begin with Gary Bettman. Anything that he said that really stood out to you? I mean, the, the changes to the draft lottery, as we've detailed on the show now for four and a half years, are well overdue. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yay. I wish they had further limited the amount of spaces that a team is able to jump up. I don't like the idea of bubble playoff teams being able to pick number one overall. I just don't want to see that. But glad to see that they're talking about limiting how many times you can Draft number one overall, the Edmonton rule, we'll call it. Um, what did you think of them limiting the uh, limiting to the top two teams now? What was your take on that? I didn't think that was as necessary. I mean, I, I get it yeah. when you have a team that was as historically bad as Detroit was last year and they end up picking fourth. So I, I get why they did it, but I, I don't think that one's as important as certainly, like you said, the Edmonton rule that I'm assuming is going to become the Buffalo rule here over the next five years. Oof, yeah. How about those Buffalo Sabres? Where's Jamie? <laughs> well, the other, thing, the other thing that Bettman discussed in, in briefly, mind you, was alignment. And it not surprisingly looks like they're, well, it's not, doesn't look like it. Assuming there are no border issues, we're going to go back to the old format. The Coyotes will go to the Central Division and Seattle will come into the Pacific Division. We'll have four divisions of eight teams. Um, I've stated how I feel about this multiple times. I even wrote about alignment again this morning, giving, uh, you know, just some way to a, a number of different proposals, including a really one, a cool one that Corey Masizek from 
from the athletic laid out for me with five divisions of either six or seven teams. And then you just see them one through 16. It's kind of cool. There are some problems with travel in that one. There are problems with every format, really, when you look at them. But the the main problem I have with the uh, four divisions of eight teams is that central division is just awful. I mean, if the Coyotes fly to Winnipeg, they're flying three and a half hours, and then they have to go through customs to play a division game. That's crazy to me. That's It's a competitive disadvantage. I hate that. I do think that there are a lot of advantages to the smaller divisions. Some people don't like those as much. One of the problems with those is it's really hard to play every team home and away in the other conference. And, and I get wanting to see every player every season. I really do. And that's a legitimate argument. But, man, when players talk so much about travel and fatigue and then you, then you create that division with just horrid travel for some teams, I just don't get it, Luke. It's really, I mean, for the most part, it's horrid travel for the Coyotes. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. And now, yes, you get put into a division. I understand this stuff changes, but you're going to be in a division with Colorado and Minnesota, the two teams that just seem to have your number. Um, there's nothing you can do about that in, in that respect. I mean, those teams might not be good in three years. Colorado will be. And apparently Minnesota will too, since they got Caprizov. But um, you're right. The travel, it just feels like there's a way that they could do that better. I mean, you're pulling the Coyotes out of division with Anaheim and LA. To me, to me, there are certain teams you look around the league and you're like, okay, well, these teams are definitely in the same division. And Arizona, LA and Anaheim to me should be in Vegas should all be in the same division no matter what, because those four teams are so close to each other. They are. They're so tightly grouped, like the Eastern Conference, and yet we're going to break them up and then, you know, keep Calgary and Edmonton together. I mean, I, there are options here, and I, I don't think they were even explored. Betwin said in that in that Zoom call that the NHL had done some polling where two-thirds of the fans said they liked what they did with alignment this year, but the, uh, they also had two-thirds saying – they want to go back to the old alignment next season. I'm not convinced because I don't see the, I haven't seen the questions. I don't know what, the, what other options the NHL offered. Um, but the, the bottom line is we're, we're going to that format. So the Coyotes, once again, are just getting stuck in a terrible situation. Just to be clear, two thirds plus two thirds is four thirds, right? And I saw that quote too, and I thought maybe it was a typo. <laughs> so, so four thirds of people. No, I, I think he was saying two thirds liked what they did this year, but. They also, when they, when they asked about next year, two thirds said, yeah, let's go back to the old alignment. I, yeah. I, I, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that polling for a number of reasons, because I think if you ask Canadians, they'd all be like, yeah, we, we kind of like this division. Certainly <laughs> think, everybody in Toronto like, would. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it is what it is at this point. I don't, I don't know what else can be done on the Coyotes and they, they're just going to have to, I guess, Suck it up on on the plus side. There there's some really attractive places to go there. Uh, uh, tr- it's it's cool to have the Blackhawks in your division, even if they're not the Blackhawks of old, because they're a big draw. So there are advantages to some of those markets coming here to visit because they are good draws. My biggest thing, and it's been this way all along, is even if you're going to align it that way, which I'm with you. I don't. I think there are fairer ways to do it. All I really care about is going one through eight in each conference. So you can have the two division winners be one and two. That's fine. Even even if one division winner would have been fourth, if you want to give them something for winning their division and, and make sure they're a top two seed, that's fine. But if you want to curb the potential unfairness of, of having a stacked division and a weak division, then just seed three through eight after the two division winners. And if if the next five teams or six teams all come out of one division, so be it, you know? That's the thing I heard most. I talked to a bunch of uh, – 
media members about this and, and actually was surprised at how many of them like the four divisions. Um, I didn't really hear any great arguments for it, to be honest. The one argument I heard against eight divisions was you could have, and I, I wrote this in the story, uh, hypothetically, let's call this the Washington hockey team winning a division with a, a, a lousy record. That's not one of the eight, eight best records in the conference and still making the playoffs. Yeah, that's, that's a definite drawback. Um, and, and I had talked about maybe seeding the uh, division winners one through four, but you could even take that a step further and say, okay, you won your division, so you get in, but we're still going to seed one through eight. You don't get a top four seed just because you won your division with a lousy record. Um, I, I think that's the thing that I heard from most people was we need to redo the playoff seeding. There are a number of proposals there. Greg Wyshynski actually likes play-in rounds. He, he wants to incorporate play-in. And, and I love that too, to be honest. I'd love to see it. It's more revenue. It's cool. It adds more excitement. Um, but I don't think they're going that route either. But I think a lot of people agree that we just need to get back to seeding these teams one through eight or, you know, even one through 16 and some of the more radical proposals just to make sure that the best teams have a, a, a greater chance of meeting in the later rounds and we don't eliminate a really good team in the first round sometimes. Yeah, that certainly. And also, I'm just, I'm sick of seeing the same matchups. I mean, it's relative, right? It's hockey and it's the playoffs. So I'm not, I'm not going to be one of those people. It's like, I'm not going to watch if it's going to be the same, but I, I don't want to see the same matchups every single year. If the, if just the, the, the way the teams play dictates it should be two other teams. It should be whoever's playing in the, in the, it should be Washington. And it's so hard now with all the divisions moved around, but. I mean, certainly Toronto, I'm sure, is sick of playing Boston in the first round, although that one I like, and we can keep that one. But just in general, I mean, we always reference back to, like, when the Kings and the Blackhawks used to meet in the playoffs every year when that was a really good rivalry. That was totally organic. It wasn't a forced thing. And it was back when you seeded one through eight. And now it's like you can kind of tell, like, okay, well, you know, it's going to be these four teams. So now the second half of the season is just lobbying to see which of the four teams plays each other in the playoffs. You take so much drama out, and that that part to me is completely unnecessary. I at least can hear the arguments of like, oh, okay, I want four divisions, or I want eight divisions, or I want, you know, I want it aligned this certain way, and I so I want Seattle and in, in, you know in Vegas and in, in the Pacific Division, or I you know I want to keep the Canadian, all that stuff. But the we can only take four teams from each division, and they have to play each other the first two rounds is a self imposed limiting rule. Yeah, completely agree. One other thing I wanted to address, um, this wasn't a question that was asked uh, on the uh, replies to our actual podcast announcement. Um, somebody asked me this in reply to my story. If I thought the scheduling format changes this year, you know, w- with uh, adding series would, would continue. Um, it was interesting to hear Bettman talk about that. I, I think they're at least open to it. And, and I know the players like it because it cuts down on travel. Coaches absolutely like it because their teams aren't as fatigued, but Bettman also con- was concerned with the idea that if you play a series in a city and that's your only time in that city, there's the, the chance that a player, a key player could be injured out of the lineup. I get that to an extent, but to me, that's a lesser concern than the, uh, the fatigue that, that, that sort of travel creates when you're just doing one, one time, one visit to that city and then going somewhere else. And then you come back to that city again another time of the year. I think you need to make travel and fatigue a priority. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I know that point that Bettman brought up has been brought up a few times of like, well, what if you're the team that catches Washington when Ovechkin's missing a week and you, all your games are against them that week? But that just that, happens over the course of a season. It's, yeah, it is what it is. That's it's not like that doesn't happen now. I mean, you could be a team from out of the division that happens to play them when mm-hmm. when so and so. So I mean, 
Yeah, right, that's a, a good per- point. The other conference, right? You only get them one time in your city anyway, so it may happen there. Yeah. In a perfect world, yes, you could avoid that. But <laughs> I think we're well past the uh, the idea that we're going to be playing in a perfect world anytime soon. Um, I thought it was interesting that, uh, or not interesting, really, one of the most predictable things ever. The helmet decals are generating revenue, so those aren't going anywhere, no. which... I don't really care, but what I found interesting is when this was first announced, it was obviously a huge thing, you know, six months ago or whatever on social media. And you had the people that were freaking out like this was the end of hockey as we know it. And I think that's a little extreme, but then you had the other people pushing back, like, well, it's only going to be for a year. If you honestly believe this was only going to be for a year, you better be less than one year old. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Completely agree. It's a source of revenue. And while I am not on the slippery slope, uh, conspiracy theory of thinking that this is going to lead to jerseys that li- that are littered with uh, decals and and uh, emblems of uh, of companies. I do think we might go down that road and we might see a title sponsor on a jersey too, because again, it's revenue and the league has to keep looking for new sources of revenue. I hope it's going to be more understated. I hope it's not some giant thing that competes with the actual team logo. I think the league is sensitive to that idea, but. I, I do think we could see more of this because it's working. I'll reiterate what I've said the last three years. We've had this conversation, NFL helmets and hockey jerseys. I don't want to see average. I understand what you're saying that you may have to have a, whatever, a little sponsor on like the sleeve or something. Mm-hmm. If we're going down that path. Okay. But the front of the hockey Jersey, that crest should be as sacred as anything in hockey. I'd rather you cover the ice in, in totally advertisements. And that's yeah. one of those things too. Like, I don't want to be watching whoever we're watching the St. Louis blues cheering for a bank in St. Louis. Like I want the logo to be the only thing I see. You know what I mean? I don't want to see the St. Louis chase banks or whatever. Right. Um, flat cap for a while. Not, not really a surprise there. And the ESPN TV deal. Yeah. What do you I, make of this as a broadcaster? I, I like it in the sense that I think ESPN has sort of gone away from hockey over the last few years. Not completely. I mean, you've got some people. You've got Barry Melrose. You've got Wyshynski. You've got John Butchergrass. You've got Emily Kaplan. You've got some people there. But in terms of, like, if you just think of what SportsCenter, for me, what SportsCenter was growing up, hockey was 25% of SportsCenter when I was growing up. You know, now it seems crazy to think because you watch SportsCenter and it's NBA and NFL. And I have to think hockey is going to carve out a bigger spot on SportsCenter by being back on ESPN. So in that respect, I think it's a good thing. But I do like the job NBC has done. Yeah, I do too. I have a couple of thoughts on this. ESPN, I, when they had the hockey rights last time, I didn't think they did enough with it. I, I didn't think their product was that great. I think they can do more, and I hope they will do more. And I'll, I'll say that. And, and let me say this as well. When you have a multi-platform outlet where you have a, a competing print product that's really good, you should bring those people into the fold because you have some real insiders in Wyshynski and Emily Kaplan who can really lend some pers- perspective, some nuance, some depth to the reporting. I don't think you're going to get that from broadcasters who are just hopping from city to city and not really diving into the nuts and bolts every day. So I hope they incorporate both of them because I, I really think they could bring something to the table to help the product. And I, I hope they try and think of other ways to just I guess just to deepen their, their coverage of the league. Cause I didn't think it was very good. I thought it was pretty superficial the last time they had it. Yeah. I, I hope that it gets, 
they have an opportunity to be pretty creative here with it. And I hope that they go down that path because you're right right now they're, they're too limited in terms of the actual people that they have. The people they have are good and it's a good base to build from. And you can kind of sense that this might be coming when games started showing up on ESPN plus, but um, I, I'm with you. They need to go deeper this time. And, and hopefully, I mean, if it's, if it's a big deal to them, and it obviously was to pay that much to get the TV rights. I, I hope, like you said, I hope, I hope it's a bigger deal on ESPN.com. I hope it's a bigger deal on SportsCenter. You've got those other ESPN platforms you can put it on. I hope, you know, podcast-wise, it becomes a bigger deal. Like, I hope they really just sink their teeth into this uh, and run with it. But we'll see. You know, they've they've got – it starts, I guess, a year from now or next season. So it's uh, – we'll see what they do with it. But obviously, they right now they are invested because they just invested a ton of money. <laughs> um. Let's go. Let's, since we are at the halfway point, exactly the halfway point for the coyotes. And since the pink dress has danced back into my beachfront property here, um, let's do, let's do some of these midseason awards. And I will suggest we start with the Craig. You've muted yourself when you're talking. I'm here. I was just uh, <laughs> typing something. So I didn't want you to hear all my typing. Oh, um, where do you want to start here? You want to start with the Norris? Sure. So we'll just, we'll do a couple. We won't do like all of them. We won't, we won't try the really big ones. Yeah. We won't try and analyze who's going to win the Selkie midway through the 56 game season. Uh, I started with the Norris because I still think this is sort of the, the least, um, dramatic one or one of them. I, I'm still giving it to Victor Hedman. Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. right? Can you believe he's only won this award once? No. There's, there's another name on this list that I can, I can't believe has only won their award once that we'll get to, but no, I mean, Hedman should be a finalist every single year. And he probably should have three of these by now. Yeah, it is crazy. And, and it, look, it's a, it's a tight race in terms of points, but in terms of overall impact on the ice, man, he's really good. But, but watch Jeff Petrie as a nice dark horse candidate doing great things in Montreal. Yeah. Drew Doughty's had sort of a renaissance with the Kings too, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going with Hedman. I, I think, I think if, if you were voting today and you went away from Hedman, you would be overthinking this and just trying to be like, oh, well, Petrie's exceeding expectations and we expect this from Hedman. Hedman's been the best. And you know who will not be a finalist for me? Quinn Hughes. <laughs> yeah. Where, let's, let's play this game. Where do you think he finishes in voting? Because he is Quinn Hughes and he's on Vancouver. I, I, I think he finishes top 10. Oh, uh, he'll finish top 10. And I, I guess I probably won't complain about that, uh, cause I get how voting works, but he's not a top five candidate. He better not be a top five candidate. I mean, Vancouver's having such a good year. How could you say that, Craig? Well, the wins are starting to stack up. You know, they're, they're starting to play Ottawa and yeah, whatever. They, they have a very slim chance of making the playoffs still. They'd have to get really hot. We'll see what happens. But yeah, he, he needs to learn how to defend better. I think that's been more of a focus for him of late, but. It's clearly a big hole in his game, and that's why there's no way I'm putting in my top five. Uh, let's go Jack Adams, and I'll let you go first on this one. I, I have Oh, sure. Solid. Just throw this at me. Yeah. I mean, can we talk about it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I have my answer if you want me to go first. If you're, oh, if you're I'll, I'll be happy to go first. Uh, here's the thing, though. Uh, there, there are a few candidates here um, and, and guys that I, I, don't, I don't know – it's almost unfair in Toronto to say, well, they're such a good team, but yeah, I'm especially with the division alignment. I just can't, I can't say, yeah, we, we have to consider Toronto for this. To me, it comes down to once again, Barry Trotz, who yeah. doing a phenomenal job with the Islanders. All right. May a couple here. I had the Islanders out of the playoffs this year in that division. I, I've been on I top of the division. 
Yeah, I know I had Washington, Boston, Philly, and I can't remember if I picked the Islanders or Penguins to make it. I think I picked the Islanders to make it just because I was so down on the Penguins, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not convinced that's wrong. But the Islanders are, I mean, they lead the way. Barry Trotz could win this award every year. Yes, but when you look at what the Florida Panthers are doing and yep. when you look at how seldom Joel Quenville has been honored, my goodness, Florida Panthers – are realizing their potential and way more than that. I, I think they're playing above themselves right now. They're on top of the central division right now, which mind you, I don't think is a good division past Carolina and Tampa Bay, but they're on top of both of those teams right now. They're playing really well. That's been a great story. So yeah, right now my leader would be Joel Quenville. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I do think that Toronto, <laughs> there's part of me, that, that worries that Toronto's just going to win every award. Like they're going to find some rookie that, that has played eight games, but he's on Toronto and all everybody up there is, is watching is the Maple Leafs. And, and just like the, I'm, there's part of me that's worried that like Sheldon Keefe's going to win coach of the year. Matthew's going to win MVP and Morgan Riley's going to win the Norris. And we're just going to sweep across the board because, and I get it to a certain extent. If you're only playing within your own division, I've heard plenty of Toronto media members say, well, yeah, I'm really only watching the, the, the North division which is like, it's fine if you're a Toronto beat writer or an Edmonton beat writer or whatever, but if you're, if you're supposed to be covering the league nationally, I think the voting is going to get screwed up this year because so many people are just watching the eight teams in their division, and I think it's going to be extreme in that North division. So I'm with you. Quenville should absolutely win this. I would not be shocked at all if Shelton Keith wins it. Hmm. Um, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, let's go. Rookie of the year, the Calder Trophy. There's a few good candidates here, and I know people don't like this one based on you know how long he played uh, overseas and how he's relatively older for a rookie. But I don't know how it's anybody other than Kirill Kaprizov at this point. He's made Minnesota watchable. Yeah, I, I don't know how anyone could vote for anyone other than Kaprizov either. Look, the rules are the rules, and you have to vote within the rules. Artemi Panarin, we remember this argument when he was a rookie, but – that's just the way it is. Those are the rules. You can you can change those if you want, but as they stand right now, no question, he's the rookie of the year. Uh, any other candidates that stand out to you? I mean, Lankinen in Chicago has been good. Yes, uh, Kapokakinen's been good. Yeah, those those would be the guys. No, uh, no skaters really, to be honest, that I would look at and say, yeah, that's a rookie of the year candidate, other than Kaprizov. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, you're right. Stutzel's been okay in Ottawa, but not like rookie of the year good. And other than that, yeah, there really hasn't been anybody. Gabe Velarde's been okay in, in LA, but he's got 12 points. I mean, that's not something that's going to win you rookie of the year. Yeah. Um, all right. Vesna, where are you going with this one? Uh, right now I'm leaning toward Andre Vasilevsky. Uh, when I, when I look at goalie stats, I, I mean, it, Save percentage and, and goals against obviously matter, but those are team stats to me. I, I look at some of the uh, better metrics, and there aren't great metrics out there for goalies, but goals saved above average is one that I look at a lot. And Andre Vasilevsky's leading the NHL in that department. Um, so I know he plays for a terrific team, but he, he's part of the reason they're so terrific. Um, they don't have a weakness in goal. So he's my vote, but I think I would also consider Marc-Andre Fleury and Kevin Lankinen. Yeah, I, I think I would lean Flurry, but it's tough between those two. If I could blend them into like Mark Andre Flurzalevsky, then you would have the ultimate goalie. But considering Flurry wasn't even expecting, I mean, there was a time last year during the playoffs where we're like, okay, so is Flurry not going to be on Vegas next year? Like, is this going to happen? And now he's been 
their best player this season. I mean, Patrick Reddy's been good. Mark Stone's been good. They're a good team, just like Tampa. Uh, you can't go wrong with Vasilevsky, but I, I kind of lean flurry right now through the first half of the season. He may be sentimental choice, too. There may be people that vote for that reason and give it yeah. to him. Uh, all right. Finally, let's go with the heart. And um, I, I guess, as we usually do with the heart, let's try and give some other contenders, too. Although, at this point, yeah. I don't know how it isn't McDavid at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's – I mean, I, I yeah, I don't know what you do. <laughs> what, what do you do when, when the guy's doing what he's doing right now? He has 53 points in 31 games. He seriously might put up a 100-point season in a 56-game yeah. season. <laughs> That's insane. And, Seven points ahead of Dreisaitl, who's, you know, obviously his teammate. But uh, And then, I mean, uh, Patrick Kane, a lot of people have talked about being in the MVP conversation again because he's having such a great season in Chicago, 42 points in 30 games. But I don't know, man. Got I, who, who else you got? Austin Matthews maybe in that conversation? I'm not sure yeah. who else. I was I was on board with the argument for Matthews if he finished. I mean, he still might finish this 56-game season with 40 or more goals. He really might. Matthews might. He's cooled a bit, though. Yeah, he has. And that, that's the thing now. He's so, like, a goal per game anymore. What's wrong with him? What a failure. Um, no, if, if, if Matthews had finished the season with, like, 45 goals, I mean, for a while there, he was on a 56-goal pace. And it wasn't, it wasn't like the first week. It was, like, the first month and a half. If he had finished with 45 goals – and 65 points, and McDavid had 80 points, I would have gone with Matthews at that point because I do think goals are more valuable than assists in this in this particular format. But McDavid's going to have 100 points or close to it. And the thing is now, like you said, Matthews has cooled, and you can put that in air quotes or whatever, but there's there's a lot of guys that aren't that far behind him, one of them being McDavid. He's only four goals behind Matthews. So that, to me, that that's the end of that conversation. Like Tyler Toffoli has 17 goals, and Toffoli's been outstanding this year, but – He's not a Hart Trophy candidate. And also, I think all of those goals have come against Vancouver. He has, <laughs> he has made them pay for letting him go, even though he wasn't really there that long. I don't see how it's anybody other than Matthews in, unless he takes the second half of the season off. Yeah. Um, all right, that's it. I don't think we need to go through any of the uh, the other awards. Um, let's get into the Coyotes. Yeah, that sounds good to me. It is interesting to me that the North Division is has tightened up a little bit. Vancouver, I know, has played a few more games, but they're – they're at least hanging around now, whereas, you know, a few games ago, I thought they were just dead and buried. They're playing a little better hockey. It's still going to be – it's going to take a lot of work for them to overtake two teams, even, you know, maybe three teams in front of them, but they're not dead yet. Is there a team – like, if I told you, hey, Toronto botches this again and they don't make it out of the first two rounds of the playoffs and they're not the North representative in the Final Four, who, who would you pick to come out of this division? If if it's not Toronto, I'd say Winnipeg. Okay, I think uh, that's a good pick. I think I would go with Edmonton just because there's a possibility McDavid and Dryside will take over a series against Montreal and you know against or Toronto. Like Toronto melts down or whatever, and, and McDavid has five goals in a game. But I just don't see anybody other than Toronto coming out of that division. With you know the caveat that they freak out every time they lose a game. Yeah, and. So I can only imagine it's like when they go into the playoffs as the favorite. They've never really been the favorite against Boston any of these years. They go in as a heavy favorite against Montreal in the first round, and Tyler Toffoli and Jeff Petrie get hot, and all of a sudden the series is even one to nothing Montreal. They're going to go into total meltdown mode in Toronto, and maybe it snowballs on them. So is Mike Smith going to continue having this renaissance season? Uh, 
no. <laughs> I mean, no. More definitive on that. <laughs> he, he's, I could see him in any given series. I think he's still, you know, he's still good enough to Edmonton's playing whoever in the first play in Winnipeg. And he knows he's going to get probably four goals of support every night that maybe he just has a really good series or even like maybe even two. Yeah. But he's also capable of doing what we saw in the bubble last year and giving up four goals in the first period and just ending their season. <laughs> yeah. That was a questionable decision to play him in that game. That uh, yeah. It didn't, it didn't last very long. Yeah. All right. To the coyotes exactly halfway through the season, 12, 12 and four. So exactly 500. Um, you know, it, Take a step back for a second. They are, well, now they're five back of St. Louis for that, that final playoff spot in the division. Um, you know, not a bad spot right now, but it, it does, it doesn't feel great after these last few games. This, this road trip so far in Colorado and Minnesota where they just, I know they beat Colorado once and they, they got to overtime and got another point. So they got three out of four points against Colorado, but the offense is just gone right now. Yeah. And I, and I'd even throw out the Colorado series because I, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was almost what I expected to see in Colorado. And I don't know if you saw the, the stat line against the Kings where they were out shooting them by like 20 in the second period. Colorado makes a lot of teams look silly. I'm, I think they're either first or second in shots per game and first in shots against per game. So they're really good at this and the Coyotes don't match up well. What I came away thinking is if, you know, the Coyotes get that 1-0 lead in the second game in Minnesota, they had a power play to take a 2-0 lead. They just couldn't convert chances once again. I thought if they get this game, you hit the midway point and you're feeling pretty good. You're at 30 points. You're right in the middle of the race. And as I've said multiple times, St. Louis has to pay the piper now. They hadn't played anybody but the California teams and the Coyotes. And now they're hitting a run of the best teams in the division. And I think it's going to have an impact on them. So had they won that game, it's crazy how one game could have flipped uh, my perspective a lot. But yeah, they lost them both. They can't score all of a sudden, can't score at all. The guys that they were relying on earlier in the season have all dried up. Even Connor Garland recently has dried up. I mean, the most dangerous player on the ice in that two-game series so far was Phil Kessel, yeah. the guy that they've been crying for, you know, to get some production on. The other guys aren't producing at all. And then, again, they're not getting any secondary scoring. So what do you do? I, I I don't, I, I don't know if it's a simple matter of they just don't have it. And apologies for these text tones that you're hearing. Um, I thought you were just having people text in every time you made what you thought was a good point. Yeah. No, I just, what do you, what do you do? I mean, is it a simple case of it? Look, we've had a lot of people tell us that the NHL the season is divided into segments. The first segment is the easiest and it gets progressively harder. Is that what we're seeing now where teams are locking down on their best players and they can't find a way around it or. Are they just in a slump or are the Coyotes simply not good enough? I, I mean, I don't think that they have enough depth in their forward group. I, I think that's pretty obvious to anyone who can analyze. They're not getting enough offense from their blue line. But are these guys, you know, are they incapable of sustaining that level of play over the course of the season? Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. You, you look at, like, I don't really want to, to spend too much time being critical of anybody in that top group, that Garland, Chikrin, Kessel, Dvorak, Schmaltz, Keller group. But we're going to have to talk about them too. But the problem is outside of those six guys, you said it. I mean, you don't really have anybody you count on for offense. And like a guy like Tyler Pitlick doing what he's doing, and he's got five goals at the halfway point. Well, that's awesome because that's really – 
you're asking Tyler Pitlick or six goals, actually. Uh, you're asking him to to do a bunch of other things, and if he wants to chip in ten to twelve goals over the course of fifty six games, that's fantastic. That yeah. he's doing to me his job. But when you're looking around and you're saying like, like you said, Garland just looks beat up. I mean, people have just been throwing. He got he got cross checked from behind into the wall in that second Kaprizov goal the other night, and they just didn't call it. I don't know what that was, but we're seeing that more and more. Um, Keller has been better this season, but he has three goals in the last month, and. That's fine as well, except when you're making that much money and you don't have any depth behind you, they yeah. sort of need Keller to be, I don't even know who the equivalent, they need Keller to be like Drysidle, which he's, he's not going to be, you know. Um, you're Kessel, cool. You know, Broussard has four goals and you can say, well, that's, you know, that's not enough for Derek Broussard. Well, he's only signed for a million dollars, so... It probably is. Johan Larson has given you four goals and Tyler Pitlick has given you six. So you're getting some secondary scoring there, but you're not getting anything from Lawson Krause and Christian Fisher. And again, other than Jacob Chikrin, nobody is scoring from your blue line. You need to pick up the slack there. It can't be on those guys all the time. Granted, they have to produce at a higher level, but you got to get these guys chipping in sometimes. That, that's the thing. And, and I, I, you know, I don't want to be a total hypocrite here. Like, I don't think scoring was a huge issue for the Coyotes for most of the first half of the season. Going in, knowing that they're not Colorado or Toronto, they don't have McDavid or Drysdale. Like, they're not going to be one of the highest scoring teams. But for the most part, a good chunk of this season, they were pretty consistently putting up three goals. Um, but the thing is, when it dries up, it's not just, oh, you know, man, we just got beat by great goaltending. They just don't even shots. So we were looking at the shot chart. I know what you're saying about Colorado and, and Colorado does this to a lot of teams. So take it with a grain of salt, but it was the second game against Colorado in this most recent series where they, the Coyotes did get a point. But if you looked at the shot chart, all of Colorado's shots were like between the faceoff dots and in the slot and like in close. And the Coyotes had like two from in close and one of them was a goal, you know? And so I do wonder if, and this is not, this is not, nothing Bill Armstrong can do about this, but I do wonder. If, or maybe it's not his fault. I mean, maybe there's something he yeah. can do about it. They are a small team and they're getting pushed around again by the bigger teams. And that's not to say, oh, you can't have a small player. No, Connor Garland could play. Clayton Keller could play. But when you have seven small players and the other teams are all bigger and they realize, hey, if we just throw this guy into a wall, he's either going to get hurt or he's going to get taken off his game. And if we get a penalty, you're not going to score anyway. That's a problem. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say than that other than you're right. Yeah, and Rick Tockett has said it. We need, we need players who have that in their DNA to go to the net. And you can do that as a small player. You can be more of, as he calls, a darter, a guy who picks his spots and times it right. They just get away from it consistently. And, and to me, I, you know, when, when I ask why does that happen, you know, the players are just like, I don't know. You know I, I think I know. It, it takes courage to do that over and over and over again when you're going to get beat up. And you need players that are willing to take that punishment repeatedly because that is where the goals are scored. It's and it's it's an increasing amount of goals are scored there now. It just gets more magnified every season. I think it's Matty McConnell who's charting this, and it's an insane amount of uh, goals that the Coyotes have scored have come from that that grade A area, and and almost nothing from the perimeter. And, and some of it is it, it, this is why I don't want to overreact too much to the last few games because I do think Minnesota either is really good or just has the Coyotes number. And like you said, the, 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 the avalanche are so good at this, but some of it is you got to get in the other zone and get set up. So guys have time to fight for position in front of the net. Yeah. And that Minnesota series, I mean, the Coyotes just never seemed to have any grade A chances other than you mentioned Phil Kessel. 
who has been yeah he he seems to have a breakaway in the last game yeah yeah and you could tell kind of they were they were both kind of like oh i have a breakaway i have to score and when you're thinking that way you're not creative you're not making a move you're not you're not dvorak going to the backhand or anything you're just shooting right into the the logo on on the front of the goalie's chest um kessel i will at least give even though he hasn't been consistent per se this year he's been much better this year and you can kind of see like He'll, he'll go away for a couple games. Then you'll see a game where he's like, he is active. He doesn't score, but he's active. And then like the next three games, you're probably getting offense from him. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I just, you know, when you say Minnesota has their number, these last two games were tied going into the third period. Yeah. All three. Yeah. They were, they had a chance to win both of those games. So I didn't really feel, yeah, they got outshot, but I didn't really feel like it was Minnesota had their number. I, I thought those games were there for the taking for the Coyotes. They just, couldn't find a way to finish. It was that simple. Especially, you know, the first one too, where they ended up losing four nothing. Kaprizov had the hat trick in the third period. Well, you know, and the, the the bad penalty call that that turned that game in my mind because it was yeah. a, the one nothing game, and Connor Garland gets cross checked by Ian Cole along the boards hard, and there's no call, and then Kaprizov scores right after. It changed the entire complexion of that game. That's why I don't want to overreact to this this two game stretch too much. And if you want to go four games, that's fine. But like you said, Colorado does this a lot, and they do. Colorado is is a legit cup contender. So I do want to see how the Coyotes respond. Um, you know, a tonight against Minnesota, but then also going forward, they haven't played Anaheim or San Jose. They've played San Jose twice this season. Like the the last six games against San Jose, that could be five wins for the Coyotes. I do. I want to see how they how they respond. Like to your point with St. Louis. The Blues have only played the California teams and the Coyotes. They're going to have to play a lot of Vegas and Colorado and Minnesota down the stretch. I want to see if the Coyotes can make up some ground playing San Jose and Anaheim and even L.A. L.A. is good, but that those are points you have to have now. they got to survive the month of March in order to be able to do that, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's another good point that's, that's worth sort of diving into. Um, the trade deadline's not that far away. So you're talking about a GM. This is, you know, this is Bill Armstrong's first year with the team. He doesn't have his fingerprints all over this, this roster yet. He wants to, he wants to get some, some draft capital back. You need to be in a playoff spot, or I would say within like two or three points of a playoff spot for him to not start trading away pieces this year. Don't you? I think so. I, I don't know what that magical distance is, how far out he looks at and says, yeah, we're not making that up. But yeah, you got, you got to be close. You, you definitely have to be close. And look, even if they are close, when I look at this roster, there, ha- there have to be some players that you consider trading if you're, if you're looking long term. Uh, for instance, if Auntie Ranta continues to play this well and Darcy Kemper comes back, don't you have to trade Auntie Ranta? Because he's yeah. not coming back. Don't you have to get something for him? You have to be realistic. You have to say, okay, We'd like to make the playoffs. That could be valuable for us, especially you don't have a first-round pick, so you might as well do that if you're capable of doing it. But could you still do that with Kemper and Hill over you know, that final short stretch? I think maybe you could if you're in that position. And again, you have to think long-term with this franchise because right now with this roster, you do not have the pieces to build anything more than a team that gets into the playoffs. You need elite pieces. You need to draft players. So you need to move players like that. You probably have to move a player like Alex Goligoski, who's eating a lot of important minutes, but probably has a market value out there. So those are probably two trades that you have to consider making. Aside from that, I mean, Nick Thomerson's not waiving his no-move no clause, so he's not going anywhere. 
I don't know that you get much for, for a Jason Demers or maybe one of these other guys. Maybe if, if you want to take a look at trading a, a Tyler Pitlick or, a, you know, one of those players, a, a, one of the grinding players, they're not going to bring as much, but you could take a look at that. But if, if you're talking about decent returns, really, it's the two goaltenders if you really want to go the nuclear route and they, they could bring something back. Alex Golagoski could bring something back decent. And then you have to talk about trading a core piece. And it's a much bigger deal at that point, which is probably a deal that you wait until the summer to do. Yeah, there, there's a lot. Of, I mean, you have to remember Armstrong, his strength is drafting and developing players. At least, I mean, that's what we know about him so far. So I, I think going through some of those, the Ronta one, yeah, I mean, he's not going to be back next year. And Aiden Hill has looked good enough where you could go to him a, a little. Like, if, we're, if we're assuming, if we're assuming, hey, you're, you're tied for the last playoff spot or you're two points back and Kemper's healthy and Ronta's been playing good and, and Hill's just been doing what he's been doing. Yeah, I think you have to trade Ronta at that point if you can get something because I don't think there's a month left in the season, right? So yeah, yeah. exactly. So I, I like, I don't think we would look back at the end of the year and be like, Oh, the coyotes would have won the cup if they had kept Ronta. You know what I mean? Yeah. As good as he has been, it would be different if he was signed beyond this year, but he isn't. And I think, you know, Aiden Hill has, is, is showing that he can be a number two goalie soon if they need him to be. And as long as you have Kemper back, I think that's a move you have to make. Like you said on defense, I don't know what you're going to get for a Jason Demers, uh, who has kind of struggled lately, to be honest. Um, so then you're, you're looking at the core and that to me is, is the interesting conversation that you probably have in the off season just because Bill Armstrong didn't draft this core. Like this is a new guy in charge. So I, I don't think he looks and says, Oh, these guys are all untouchable because we signed them. I would hope Chikrin is untouchable. That's I would think he's the one player you could say is untouchable. I, yeah. I'd still like to keep Christian Dvorak. I think he does a lot of things. And if he's put in the right situation, the right role, I think he can be a really effective player for you. But beyond that, I mean, I, I'd like to see Connor Garland re-signed. Obviously, he's a dynamic player, and you can use that in your lineup. But like I said, the, there's there's not many untouchables on this roster. Yeah, that's that's probably the best way to put it. There are quite a few players I'd like to keep and build around, but to be able to get additional pieces, you're probably going to have to at least consider trading some, because you don't have any draft picks to trade away. So if Bill Armstrong decides in the offseason he wants to make a shakeup, he's probably going to have to trade away one or two or more of those guys I'd like to keep and build around. So to me, if I could only keep three, it would be Chikrin, it'd be Garland, who isn't signed yet past this year, and I'd like to keep Kemper, but I understand it's different with goaltending, you know? Um. As far as like midseason awards for the Coyotes, Chikrin has been the MVP so far. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, Connor Garland's in that conversation, right? Yeah, those two, and and I mean, Kemper's been hurt, and Kemper's been really good, but his numbers aren't what they typically are. No, he he hasn't been great this year. I would say that. So I would say Chikrin or, or Garland. Yeah. Um, we kind of highlighted the other. I mean, the problem is there are there are a few guys, and Rick Tockett has hinted at this quite a bit this season. There are a few guys that you just, you know, going into a game, they're probably not going to score. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like the Coyotes have more of those guys than most playoff teams. You know what I, I mean? mean? You know, with, with Fisher and Kraus in particular, um, it, it's important to note that their roles, they're starting in the defensive zone a lot and it's harder to produce offense, but that doesn't mean you can't produce any offense. There are other players around the league who are in similar roles and they do chip in with goals once in a while. I'm not saying, that if you're starting 65% of your zone starts in the defensive zone, you're going to get to 15 goals. It's harder in that situation. But 
You can score 10 goals in a season. They need something from those guys. And it's not an adequate excuse to say my role is preventing me from producing offense. No, it's not. You're getting opportunities. They're not as, they're not as frequent as those guys in the top six, but you're getting opportunities and those guys need to start burying some of them. Yeah. I feel like Kraus has sort of been snake bitten this year and it's, it's tough with him because he did have 15 goals last year and, and him in particular, they, they'll move him up and down the lineup. Like you're not going to see Fisher playing on the top line. I do think to a certain extent Kraus got a little unlucky early this season and then it seemed to get in his head. Um, he's not, he's not somebody I would trade if I were the Coyotes because I don't, A, I don't think you'd get anything back for him right now. He has one goal this season. But yep. B, I think he is one of those guys where you need to be able to put him on the second line with Connor Garland so teams don't mess with Garland one night. And also Kraus can contribute some offense. I mean, he should have had an assist on that Kessel goal the other day. I don't, it, the puck got touched slightly on the pass over, but whatever. Right. But um, but that said, they can't endure another season like this, or even really another half season like this from him. He's he's got to produce at least no. five goals in the second half of the season. You know, and I I think you know he'd probably like to get some time on the power play, and maybe that's something that the Coyotes should look at in terms of net front because, I mean, their power play. It, you can't say it's been good for a while. It was average, but now it's not. It's it's not good. It's it's been bad recently. So maybe you do try and shake things up and give him an opportunity. Maybe he breaks the string that way by giving you a little net front. But again, you got to earn your opportunities by by producing in those lower roles. And and neither he nor Christian Fisher has been able to do that thus far. And and I don't want to say that they haven't done good things on the ice. They have. They they're contributing in other ways, but. At some point, you have to contribute goals. It's just the bottom line. You can't be an NHL regular and have no goals or one goal at this point of the season. Yeah, and especially not on a team like the Coyotes because it's been proven time and time again. They're not going to get fortunate bounces in the draft lottery. They're not going to end up with Austin Matthews or Connor McDavid or, you know, any. If you have a a top end guy on your team that is going to put up 80 to 90 points every full season, then maybe you can have a guy like Christian Fisher whose job is really just penalty kill and, and you know, be a fourth-line grinder. But when you're on a team that needs everybody to kind of pull relatively evenly, and, and Rick Tockett has said he wants to have four lines that he can roll out there that are that are fairly even, everybody's got to score. Everybody's got to score a little because nobody's going to – nobody. I mean, in this 56-game season, how many, how many Coyotes do you think will go over the 20-goal mark? Mm. I haven't like, done the math on it, but – Well, right now, none of them are on pace. Yeah, yeah, and that's a problem. <laughs> I think maybe I'll, I'll go ahead and say one, maybe two get there. But I mean, like McDavid's already there. You know what I mean? Um, okay, let's. You want to get into some of these listener questions? Sure. We have a somehow lot we still have a ton of them, even though I didn't even announce the podcast until what three hours before we started. Even though you tried to, to tweet out the question like four in the morning. Yeah. Uh, Chris Blythe writes in, if you could do a podcast about anything else other than hockey, what would it be about? Well, mine would be, mine would be about Chicago bears quarterbacks. What would yours be about? Wow. That's just hurtful. Well, you know, looking at your background reminds me that mine would probably be about travel. Of course, uh, I need someone to pay for all of that travel and I'd be happy to write about it for them. Let them know what I was seeing and experiencing. See, now that's interesting because if you were doing a travel podcast, every time you travel, that means huge breaking coyotes news. So then that would give us more content for this podcast too. That's true. That's All right. A win. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's some sort of conundrum. It's a two for one deal. Uh, Joseph, are the Panthers going to keep this level up and will the Habs make the playoffs? I don't know if Florida is going to maintain quite this level because I think 
a couple teams in that division are going to turn it up a notch, Tampa Bay and Carolina, namely. But I think they're a playoff team, which is <laughs> I, think, I think anyone in that market would have taken that at the beginning of the season. I think they're probably going to end up third in this division. It doesn't look like Dallas is going to figure things out, does it? What's no. up? Wow. I mean, they're getting healthy and they're still not playing well. I, I will give Dallas, it feels like they play Tampa Bay every time I look up. But they're doing something weird with their goaltending. And I know Hudobin had a couple, a couple bad games in there, but like, I don't know who's starting tonight and they are playing Tampa again tonight. But they, the last two games, they, they kept him on the bench and it was a back to back and they lost the first one. Yeah. And, and I don't, so they save him for Tampa. I'm assuming he's going to get smoked tonight against Tampa. I don't, I, yeah. Uh, I think Florida's a playoff team. I think they'll finish second, maybe third in that division. I still think Tampa's going to win the division. And I think it's going to be a great first-round series with Carolina. The Montreal. only thing I would say with Dallas is that, uh, look, the team that they're trying, I don't think Columbus, Nashville, or Detroit are playoff teams. Dallas has to catch the Blackhawks. They're, right now they're, they're nine points behind them, but they have six games in hand. So there is opportunity there. I, the Blackhawks are starting to slip a little bit here, and that is not a surprise to anyone who is actually analyzing the roster. Um, mm-hmm. With a dose of reality, obviously Stan Bowman is not doing that. So I still think Dallas has to, has a chance to catch the Blackhawks. They got to get hot though. It's, it's obviously time they're almost at the midpoint of their season. Why do I only see, maybe I'm reading this wrong. They've already played Chicago four times this year and they've lost three of them. Dallas has, although two of those were in overtime, but I only see two more games, but I only see two more games scheduled against Chicago. Maybe they haven't rescheduled those others yet. I don't know. I don't know what the, I haven't been following the Dallas Stars schedule closely. Sorry. Well, they've had a lot of postponements. So maybe. Uh, as far as Montreal, uh, I don't know. I, I still don't. I, I I don't think that's a playoff team. But Calgary has to get its act together. Yeah, I I, I still I think I'm just going to stick with this. And as good, like I said, Toffoli's been really impressive. Petrie's been really impressive. Um, maybe I was a little low on Montreal. I thought they would miss the playoffs this year. I still think they're going to miss the playoffs this year because I do think even though Daryl Sutter might wear out his welcome in Calgary pretty quickly, I think he'll give them a jolt. And I just think what we've seen in the first half of Montreal is as good as you're going to get from this team. Yeah. I think Calgary's getting in. I really do. I think Montreal will be the fifth team in that division. Yeah. Which, you know, is not going to be good enough for them up there, but considering that, I mean, you know, Calgary has Johnny Gaudreau and Sean Monahan and Calgary should be a playoff. Matthew Kachuk, like that should be a playoff team. Montreal, is kind of piecing things together right now. Who else can they fire? <laughs> well, oh yeah, they have a GM. <laughs> yeah, they do have a GM, don't they? Yeah. Um, okay, let's. Uh, how did I, I opened up so many windows now? I can't find any of the questions. Look at that. Um, Jeffrey Travis Twyman. OEL struggles have been well documented. How much of them could be due to lacking a solid D partner to play with? Is he overcompensating and trying to do too much simply because he doesn't fully trust his partners? Man, I mean, I don't think he's had great partners this season, and whether it's Ilya Labushkin or Jason Demers, who hasn't played well this season, but that's giving way too much credence to the idea that, yeah, if he had a better partner, he'd be what? He'd be a star? OEL hasn't played well. And in that, that, in that last game, when he came all the way across the ice to double up with Jason Demers on a player along the back, along the boards in the neutral zone, leaving the entire middle of the ice wide open, for a breakaway and a goal. uh, I can't remember if it was a game-winning goal or the game-tying goal, but those mistakes can't happen. Your captain can't be making those mistakes. I don't understand 
what's going on with the OEL. But that is, that's an egregious structural mistake that any left side defenseman should know. No, I can't, I can't leave the middle of the ice wide open to go help along, along the boards in the neutral zone. It was crazy. I don't know what he was thinking there. Yeah, I'm with you. I do think though that that to me screams that he doesn't necessarily trust his defensive partner. And but, we've but, seen but trust is like coming all the way across to the boards to help out. Like just to hold your position. You know what you're supposed to do defensively. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, I would, I would go the, the next step to that is whether you trust your defensive partner or not, you're still the one getting out of position. Like, I mean, we, we, we've seen Jason Demers hasn't looked like Jason Demers this year and Ilya Labushkin's had a very uneven season. And also I think they pretty much envisioned Labushkin as a sixth or seventh defenseman on, on this team. Yes. Um, so even if, even if Oliver's not getting much help around him and he doesn't have a consistent defensive partner that's in the right position, like you said, not only are you, are you supposed to be the best defensive player on the team, you're also the captain. That's, that's fine. If Jason Demers is not his guy, then that guy scores that you can't also get out of position. Like the Kevin Fiala goal the other day, it, it almost looked like Demers just kind of, I don't know what was going on on that play. And it's a bang, bang play and credit Minnesota for, for a nice, nice setup right there. But if you're Oliver and you're trying to do too much, it's not working. So you need to stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the solution is. I know uh, Rick Taga told me uh, recently that he spent a lot of time watching video and working with OEL on some of the things that look, I, I think some of what's going on here is when OEL came into the league, he's a very fluid, good skater. And, and everybody could see that the game has gotten so much faster, Luke, in the past 10 years, it really has. I don't know that he is, his skating has kept up. And when you see his technique, sometimes, especially when he has to make that pivot with his hips, you, you see a lot of mistakes in, in his technique in those areas and it gets him out of position defensively. I know they're trying to work with him, but, it, it's a real concern, obviously, because he's got a lot of time left on his contract. He's he's obviously not going anywhere this season because he's he's not waving the no move. And I mean, if 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 OEL keeps playing like this, he's almost an impossible player to trade. Well, it, it's the skating thing is an interesting point because when he first came in the league, I thought he was one of the best skaters in the NHL, and I, he's had his more than his fair share of lower body injuries. I don't know if that's in effect or not, or if it's you know whatever. But you're right. It, the thing with OEL is when he makes good plays, we don't talk about it. We just focus on when he makes a bad play. And there are plenty of times when he's going up against the best of the best on the other teams and he makes a good play. But the problem is, sort of to your point, I feel like he, and I don't know what year it was, let's say four years ago, four or five years ago, he's plateaued or gone downhill since then. Like mm-hmm. he should still have been getting better. He's not that old. Like he, he shouldn't be dropping off. And you're right. It almost feels like a lot of the opposition has gotten better. And he just hasn't gotten better. He really hasn't gotten better since Rick Tockett was here. And I'm not putting that on Rick Tockett because a lot of guys have gotten better. But for whatever reason, OEL has, he's not the player he was in 2016, let's say. No question. No question. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a big enough body of evidence now to where it's past the, uh, where it's past the point of you saying, Oh, you know, can he, he's got to turn this around. There are very legitimate concerns now that he simply isn't going to be an impact player anymore. And that's, but, a, that's a big problem. Yeah. I mean, if, if in a perfect world, if he was on a defensive pairing with somebody as good as Jacob Chikrin, and that was your top pairing, or if, you know, if OEL, if you're like, Hey, you know what? You're going to get a lot of minutes, but you're actually going to lead our number two pairing. I, I mean, that'd be awesome. But again, it goes back to the stuff with like with Keller and Garland and Dvorak. You're not on a team where you can just be good. You need to be 
really, really good because the bottom of this team isn't going to score. The defense, especially going forward, I mean, who's your defense beyond this year? Right now it's OEL and Chikrin. Yep. And then, yeah, and then uh, a third pairing of probably Labushkin and Osterley if they resign. Yeah. But that, yeah. that's what I'm saying. They're yeah. not even resigning. They didn't have him. And Victor Soderson's not going to be ready. There's no way that you should bring that guy up from Tucson in this shortened AHL season where, by the way, he's – Really not playing that well. He's had a very uneven season. So I don't think you can say after this season, Victor Soderstrom is ready. And by the way, Barrett Hayden is really struggling down there too, not to get too far off topic, but two of their top prospects are not playing all that well in the AHL. That's very concerning. Yeah. And Soderstrom is so young and playing the defensive position and Armstrong is so good, or at least he was in St. Louis, about letting guys sort of marinate at the AHL level until they are ready to go. So I, I don't think they want to rush him next year to your point. But they're going to lose a lot off their defense, so they're going to have to go out and get guys uh, in the offseason, which is fine. I mean, you because you have Chikrin, it's not that hard to go out there and get a fourth defenseman in free agency, but you can't miss. You need right-handers, too. That's the problem, right? That Both, makes it harder. Chikrin and OEL are left-handers, and you really want those right-handed guys. And you see it. I mean, I, you know, you've heard coaches talk about this, the importance of that, and that, I just think it's all the more magnified with the speed of the game now. There's less time to make those plays out of your defensive zone or through the neutral zone than there used to be. So if a guy has to switch over from his backhand to his forehand to do it, that's all the time you had. It's gone. The guy's closed on you at that point and your opportunity is gone. So they really need to look hard at how they're going to find right-handed defensemen in the offseason. Brandon writes in, are you going to start using the late post excuse to avoid answering listener questions? Yes, I recognize the irony if you do, in fact, answer this. I mean, that was the intent, obviously, and posting it only a couple hours before the podcast, but it didn't work, so we're we're going to have to try something else. Yeah, next time we're going to have to post it after the podcast. Uh, Coyotes fans, Germany will prospect Matthias Michelli go directly to Tucson when his season at Isles is over. Undetermined. Maybe. Okay. Uh, there's, there's a chance of that. We have to look at what the border situation is, is like, the playoff situation over there. I don't know yet. There's there's a lot of variables, but I think in a perfect world, they'd like to bring him over and get his feet wet uh, with Tucson. Uh, Cheryl, we kind of touched on this earlier, but I'll I'll ask anyway. Quite a few coaches and players have commented about liking the series format. Do you think that will carry over after the season? I imagine the travel savings would be substantial and it might take less of a toll physically and on life outside hockey. Yeah, we mentioned this earlier uh, that the the thing that Bettman said about wanting to, uh, you know, worrying about, uh, an injured star not seeing a team in their one visit if you play a two-game series and that's it. Um, again, I don't think that should be a major concern because it's just going to happen and it happens with the other conference anyway. I think there's a lot of a lot of support for the idea of these series. There are a lot of people in the league that like playing these two-game series in cities. Probably not more than that with, with the way the schedule will lay out, but I think it makes a lot of sense. It really helps um, reduce wear and tear. Yeah, and if the missing a star player is, is the only thing standing in the way, or if that becomes like the biggest thing, I, I could see them. I could see them, you know, being willing to just go over that. I mean, it would be a little bit tough to schedule because, you know, the Coyotes aren't going to play the Capitals enough time. Like either way, you go you go to Washington to play the Capitals, you're only going to play them once because you're only playing them twice all season. I guess unless you decided this year you play this Eastern Conference team twice in their building, and then next year you play them twice in your building. I mean, there are ways to do it, but there are certain teams you only play once on the road as it's currently set up. Whatever, as long as I don't have to see them play Colorado and Minnesota eight times next year, I'm uh, I'm good. Um, let's see. 
Greg, if cost was no object and his Uber was covered, what would Craig eat and drink during a hockey game? And for everyone else, why is Craig's choice a bad one? <laughs> it's from Greg Dunaway. <laughs> really? It's from Greg Dunaway. I, I never. Hmm. I would have sushi or Mexican. Okay. And you can right. tell me why that's wrong. It's, it's not, of course. It's the right answer. And Greg doesn't get to hear any wrong answers or anyone countering me because it's my podcast. Would I assume your drink would be an IPA? Next question, please. <laughs> uh, Los Coyotes, Steve, has Arizona officially moved into selling assets? I don't think we're there yet. No, we talked about this already. We're, we're, we're approaching D-Day, but we're not there yet. Uh, it's going to be a weird trade deadline, too, because you're getting a guy for a month. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm going to dive into that a little later. This, this trade di- deadline is going to look a lot. If you, if you hear some of the chatter from GMs, it's dollar in, dollar out. There's going to be a lot of restrictions. That I'm not sure we're going to see as much movement. Now, I think some teams that are, that are in legitimate cup contention will still go for it and acquire pieces, but there, there are a lot of hindrances this year that haven't existed in past years. So it's going to be interesting to watch that. Yeah, I mean, you can't, if you traded a guy to Toronto, let's say, it's not like he can step in and play the next night. So if you, let's say you trade a guy to the Leafs on April 12th, or, you know, what a day, let's say a day before the trade deadline, it's not like they get him at the deadline. And this is of him. Yeah. And then this, the quarantine, yeah. And then the season ends, the regular season ends like May 8th for the Coyotes. Um, so you're talking about, trading a guy that a team has for basically four weeks, but not even four weeks. Maybe they have him for like two and a half weeks. We've seen in the past, sometimes it takes a guy six weeks to get going with his new team. So I don't, I don't know how many trades we're really going to see. I wonder how much of that will weigh into GM's thinking too. I really do. Like if you say, okay, especially if you're one of those Canadian teams, like you said, if we don't acquire a player like right now, are we getting enough value for, you know, two weeks of regular season and, and I don't know what in the playoffs um, if like, like I said, if you're a real cup contender, you may be willing to, to roll the dice on that, but there are a bunch of teams in the middle that might think, not sure it's worth it. And it might not be. It's funny. Cause I it was funny. We're talking about this because I saw Kyle Dubas say earlier today that, you know, he's sort of inclined that if he's going to make trades, he would like to make them soon. He doesn't want to wait until close to the deadline for that exact reason. He'd like to make them by like the end of March mm-hmm. uh, at the latest. Also, side note on Kyle Dubas, probably should be in the running for GM of the year. And if you look at at uh, at social media posts after a Toronto loss, everybody, every Leafs fan wants him gone. So can you win GM of the year and get fired in the same year? <laughs> um, Ethan, and so we have a few of these that have talked about they're, they're going to talk about trade. So I'm going to lump a bunch of these together. We've got one from Omniscient Yotes fan. We've got one from Ethan. Um, a lot of them asking what Auntie Ranta would get, what teams would be interested in him. Uh, Ethan says, have you heard of any potential trades the Coyotes may make? I've seen Dom's predictions, and they have about a 20% chance of making the playoffs today. I'm sure they want a first-round pick. Could they realistically get this for anyone on the roster other than Kemper? None of the, none of the veterans on expiring contracts, no. I don't, I don't think you could. Um, yeah. Darcy Kemper, even Darcy Kemper might not bring you a first-round pick, uh, Goalies don't tend to bring first round picks, but maybe, maybe there's a team like Colorado or Carolina or Edmonton that thinks it really needs a starting goalie of that caliber and, and might be willing to part with a late first round pick because it's not going to be a high pick. And 
you know, the chances of hitting on those picks are not great anyway. You might get it for Kemper, but beyond that, no. As far as Auntie Ranta, maybe you'd get a second round pick. Probably a third round pick is what I'm thinking. Yeah, and, and going back to our earlier conversation, if Kemper's healthy and and Hill looks like a guy that you could lean on for, I don't, I don't know how many games they have left after the trade deadline, but let's say probably about 14 and, and you felt like you could go with Kemper for 11 and Hill for three of them, and you could get a late second-round pick for Ranta. Again, Ranta's not signed after this year, so you might have to do something like that. Um, and Colorado Colorado has been the team most consistently linked to Coyotes goalies. I mean, you bring up Edmonton. I, I, I don't want to trade Kemper for the 29th pick in the draft because he is signed for next year, and I think he gives you your best chance to be competitive next year too. But if I'm Edmonton, I absolutely would give up my late first-round pick this year for Kemper. I might win the Stanley Cup if I had goaltending. I mean, they need to add – they have to help with defense too. But they've got two of the five best forwards in the world, and they can't even make the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely um, to watch a team in the mix. I'm probably missing a couple others. I know there are a couple other teams that need goaltending, but those three teams come to mind. And so maybe you could pry a late first-round pick away for Kemper if – and that's the nuclear option, right? Yeah, because then you're just saying, okay, it's going to be really rough around here for a couple of years, folks. Uh, I've got some realignment questions. We kind of already addressed those. Um, okay, Ben, I think it's Barry. Why do the Coyotes seem to match up better with St. Louis as opposed to teams like Minnesota or Colorado? It's like watching two different Coyotes teams depending on who their opponent is. You know, Tyson Nash said something interesting to me. He said, you know, everybody talks about St. Louis being a heavy team, but when I look at Colorado, that's a heavy team. Not only do they, you know, they, they, they have the speed and skill and we see how they play team defense, by the way. I don't think there's a team that plays better team defense than Colorado. They, they swarm you with their speed through the neutral zone. They just snuff out opportunities so fast because they're so structured and they're so fast and so disciplined. But that's, I mean, they are, they are heavy on top of all that. And I would say that that added element on top of their elite skill just makes them a brutal matchup. St. Louis isn't that skilled and I don't think they're as heavy as they've been. I've said this a few times on the podcast. I think St. Louis is slipping and we're going to find out now if they're actually slipping when they have to play the tougher competition in the division. As far as Minnesota, I don't think they match up badly against Minnesota. Like I said, they were tied in those two games going into the third period. Yeah, they were getting outshot a bit, but I thought they were right in both of those games and they had a chance to win both of those games. I think Colorado is the one team that the Coyotes simply can't match up against in this division. Yeah, and if it's just Colorado, and I do tend to agree, I mean, they played Vegas well, I thought. Vegas is is just as good as, as Colorado, if not better. But But Colorado specifically, I mean, look, Coyotes fans remember that playoff series in the bubble last year. It was hard not to come away from that being like, okay, we'll, we'll never beat Colorado in a seven game. I mean, that's how it felt after that series, after two seven to one losses. And, you know, Nikita Zadorov just throwing guys around the ice. Now he's not there anymore, but to your point, they go out and they add a guy like Devon Taves, who's just a smart pickup for Colorado mm-hmm. on that blue line. Colorado may very well be the best team in the NHL other than Tampa. So there's no shame to me. And especially if you can do what they just did get outplayed, but still get three out of a possible four points from Colorado. When we came into the season, I thought the Coyotes could be a playoff team. I wasn't expecting many points in the games against Colorado. I was expecting points against Anaheim, San Jose, L.A. Uh, I was expecting some against St. Louis because they do play St. Louis well. And then hold your own against Vegas. 
the problem is the Minnesota games were supposed yeah. to be the most important. And yeah, to your point, the last three games have all been tied going into the third period. I think why people think Minnesota is such a bad matchup for the Coyotes is that Minnesota swept them last year too, yeah. but that was a different team. And they've still got four more games against the wild. This one tonight, this one tonight's huge. I mean, you, you I are going to, I think it's a must win tonight, to be honest. I, I know that's silly to say in the middle of a season, but you know, with the way that you're playing against the wild right now, yeah, if you, you lose another game, you've already lost four games to them at that point. Yeah. And if you do, if you do lose to them, then it really does become St. Louis, the team you're going to have to catch because Colorado and Vegas are definitely making the playoffs and Minnesota is, is starting to look more like a playoff team too. Yeah. There's a Coyotes fan Germany asked this and we were talking about the play of Hayton and Soderstrom down in Tucson so far. Do the Roadrunners need veteran experience around those guys, guys like Chapu and Ness to help them? It's an interesting question because you do like to have a little of that element and the taxi squad has robbed Tucson of some of those players that they would normally have. Uh, But it's done it to every other team too in the AHL. But what I would say on that is they wanted Hayton and Soderstrom to play in big minutes in all situations. That's what the AHL is for. I know you want to have, you know, a fair amount of success with your team because you want your team to be, you want your young players to be raised in a winning culture. But at the same time, this is a developmental league. So you need to put these guys in those roles to let them develop. I think they're okay letting them struggle for a little bit, but if it, if it persists, they may have to alter course a bit. Yeah, that's a good point. That's the, the development of those next two specifically in Soderstrom and, and Hayton's. It's going to be so big for, for, for where this team goes in the future. Because, you know, as we said at the start of the year, people were overreacting to all the, the loss of draft picks, not in the sense that it's, you know, it is a big deal, but people were overreacting in the sense that it was going to hurt them this year. It's not going to hurt them this year. You still have your team, basically. It's, it's now going forward. They really have to navigate. How do we either get more picks or make sure the guys we have, the Soderstroms and the Haytons, become worthy of where we drafted them? Yeah. And, I, and Jan Yanyik, too, obviously, is the other big guy down there of the skaters. Yeah. Uh, I'm a Raven. Ha, ha. There it is. Any ideas on Sorry, what his... Did you, what did you say that Twitter handle was? Uh, it's, a, it's a I'm a Raven. Ha, ha. There it is. Uh, any idea on what has happened... Or what has changed since the St. Louis series ended? The Yotes hadn't looked awful in any game up until that point, but the last month has been full of duds. I don't have any answers for that. I mean, other than one of the, the things that I said earlier, that uh, GMs, coaches will tell you that the NHL season is divided into segments and it gets progressively harder as teams get more dialed into what they need to be doing and what, what they need to do to stop other teams it just gets harder. And, and we've seen that there's, there's plenty of proof of that. Maybe that's part of what's playing in here. Can the coyotes respond? It's a really good question. If they can't, then we could see major changes to this roster. Yeah. I mean, 13 games since the St. Louis series, four of them against Colorado. So again, I kind of set those aside for a second. So you're looking at the other nine games. I did think they came out a little flat against LA in one of those games right after the series, but, you know, they're 1-1-1 one, one, and one against L.A. since then. They're 2-0 and oh against Anaheim, although, to be fair, they fell behind 3 nothing in both those games and the other four against Minnesota. So it might just be a little too early to 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 jump to that. But I, I will agree with the fact that up until the point when that St. Louis series ended, they really had only had one bad game all season. It was that second one against Vegas. And they have had some bad ones since then. So I, I tend to agree with you. You're just you're getting deeper into the season. Teams that have been here before know what it takes to win. They are sort of figuring out how to to make life tougher on the Coyotes. 
I'd also say St. Louis, since that series ended, really hasn't been very good. They, um, they're finding ways to get points in a lot of these games, but St. Louis, that series ended and they've won five of their next 12. And those wins were over Anaheim twice, San Jose twice in LA. So sort of along the lines of what you were saying before, St. Louis hasn't been all that impressive either. I don't, I don't know if playing the same team seven times in the middle of the season takes a toll on you or what. Um, that's pretty much it. We've got some other ones, but I can't, uh, now I can't get to them. Uh, here, here's nonlinear donut ball delivery. After watching Braden point throw hands with Andrew Cogliano, it occurred to me that fighting seems to be up this year. I'm not sure if the statistics agree, but the Coyotes seem to have more fighting majors this year too. Is it the smaller divisions, the multi-game series? I don't know the reasons behind it, but I actually looked this up after reading this question, and they are up slightly this season, if you take a look. Tampa Bay is leading the league, by the way, uh, per game, but they are up slightly if you you look at them. It's not a dramatic change, but they are up slightly, and I wonder if it's – I think part of it is probably, you know, the division rivalries. You're playing the same teams all the time, so when you see teams in series, things get a little more heated. Um. One other one from nonlinear donut ball delivery to asking, okay, now that Kachina has taken over as our home logo, do you think the Coyotes will freshen up their Arizona license plate to feature it? A black plate with the red square pattern border along the bottom would look sharp. I don't know about their plans, but that would be cool. That would be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's most of the questions. If there's other ones, I'm sorry we didn't get to them, and uh, it's Jamie's fault. Okay, but, yeah. Blame Jamie. I actually started a hashtag, so we can oh, nice. use that from now on. One, let me ask you one question before we go here. I'm not sure if you saw my poll, Luke, or if you've participated in my poll, because you don't really participate in much that I do on Twitter. <laughs> not that I'm not bitter. true. Um, which format do you like best in alignment? Would you choose eight 14 divisions? The Corey Bacizek model, which I, I really like, is cool, actually. Five, yeah. six, or seven team divisions. The current model of four 18 divisions. Just conferences like sort of like the NBA, although I know it still structures its regular season a little in division play, but two conferences or no conferences at all. Just go Euro soccer style. I would like either the eight four team divisions. So basically the NFL model or just the two conferences. Those are the two that appeal to me. So go, go one extreme or the other. I don't, I don't really like the four divisions, although I will say. Like I said earlier, I wouldn't mind the four divisions if when you got to the playoffs, you just took the eight best teams out of each conference. I, I don't like the idea of forcing a fourth team in from a trash division and keeping maybe the sixth best team in another division out that deserves to be in. Mm-hmm. So I, I do like your your eight four-team division plan. Uh, but if you're not going to go with that, go the other way. Go full extreme, just have two. Well, count on you on voting in my poll then. It, actually, it looks like I already did because I just tried to pull it up on Twitter. I don't remember. It must have like... I don't know. I must just vote so quickly when you post something that I, I just I don't even remember doing it. <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap this up. We do want to give a, a mention to our elevator guy at, uh, at Arizona Coyotes Games for, I mean, so, so Chuck Jared, who everybody, everybody just loved this guy. And he passed away earlier this week. Just the nicest guy in the world. He'd been doing, he'd been doing the games since well before I ever started working for the team. I know people that, that, that go back all the way to their roadrunner days with him. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just the nicest guy in the world. It's been a tough week for everybody around there. 
Chuck had a photographic memory for attaching faces to names. He was so good at that. Like he, people would walk into the elevator from other teams, executives from other teams, and he'd just say hello to them by name. <laughs> I was stunned because I'm, I'm not very good at that. So I always <laughs> appreciated that with Chuck. He would always tell me who was in the building that night, which was like having a source as you're riding up to the press box. But as I, as I tweeted, Chuck was just such a positive guy. He, he always felt like the Coyotes were going to win that night. He, he was just always in a good mood. So Godspeed, Chuck. We'll miss you. Yeah, that's that's maybe the best way to describe it. Every every time you get on the elevator to start the game, he'd put you in a good mood, and he'd be like, "I think we're going to get him tonight." Every game, I mean, it, it, you know, according to Chuck, the Coyotes were undefeated every year, and it felt like it. I mean, it, it, opposing players would come in, they'd meet him for two minutes, you know, and they would they would remember him. I know Biz was was, was a was a, a great uh, great friend to him. Everybody, everybody there, you, you can't you can't cover hockey in the Valley over like the last thirty years and not know Chuck. And I have, you know, it's one of the best things you can say about somebody, everything I hear about him. And, and certainly I've seen it firsthand as uh, you never hear anybody saying anything bad about him. That's, that's a pretty, it's a pretty impressive uh, track record. So we'll miss you, Chuck. All right. That is going to do it for episode 272. Thanks to uh, everybody for listening for Craig Morgan. I'm Luke Lipinski. This has been the natural hat trick podcast.